0: Welcome to the Best of the Left Podcast, with clips today from Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, Mother Jones Radio, Al Franken, and Rachel Maddow.
1: Joining us now is Sam Harris, author and essayist. He joins us to talk about his new book, The End of Faith religion, terror, and the future of reason. It won the 2005 Penn Award for nonfiction. Thanks so much, Sam, for joining us on Ring of Fire.
2: Thank you, Bobby. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Your book is really fantastic, and it's, it's very, very well argued, and it's interesting. It's fun to read. I have to say that I disagree with the basic thesis, but I think it's important for people to hear this argument. I mean Your thesis, essentially, is that faith-based religion should become extinct, and that we need a conceptual revolution, and that religion really has been the bane of civilization. Make that case.
2: It's quite simple. I'm simply saying that either you have good reasons for what you believe, or you don't. We only invoke faith when you don't have good reasons or or when your reasons have failed or your reasons are in conflict with empirical evidence or logical argument. We don't tolerate this in any other area of our lives but on the subject of God and, and what happens after death and the moral structure to the universe What I'm arguing is that we're paying a a terrible price for that double standard. If I came on your show and said that Elvis, that I was certain that Elvis was still alive, for instance, you would not take me seriously. And people who think Elvis is still alive don't become presidents of the United States or sit on our boards of directors. And yet we have a president at present who thinks that the creator of the universe is, in some sense, vetting his intuitions about when to go to war, about when not to go to war, in some sense, he he thinks that God has put him in the White House, and therefore he thinks he really can't make a mistake, and I, I think that should be terrifying to all of us.
1: Well, the argument, of course, is that, that religion is not the cause of all the violence that we've seen in world history. There's plenty of reasons for religion is often the excuse.
2: I just want to make this clear. I'm definitely not arguing that religion is the sole source of violence. There, there would be war without religion. Uh, nobody can deny that. My problem with religion, however, is that it really is the most articulate species of in-group, out-group thinking, where you really have people willing to blow themselves up or celebrate their children blowing themselves up, and uh, that people really do get to paradise this way. It becomes rational to blow yourself up or fly planes into buildings, and that that's what I find so terrifying about religion specifically.
1: Well, I would argue that your beef is with fundamentalism rather than with religion. It's religion that that really gets us to do altruism, true altruism, which is self-sacrifice. And without a supernatural, it's hard to make an argument for true altruism. You can have kind of false altruism, the kind of that, that Walmart does when it brings water down to Katrina victims, which, you know, you know, or that our corporate structure does, or that people do every day, which is kind of a reciprocal altruism. But to do true self-sacrifice, the kind that binds societies together and that really urges us to do good things, genuinely good things to each other, you really need a transcendent mandate that does not come from biology, that but comes from the supernatural.
2: That's one of the things I argue against in my book. I think that that the truth is the other way around, that true altruism does not come from thinking that the creator of the universe dictated one of our books or that he will reward you for behaving in a certain way after death. A true altruism really comes from the realization that you deeply care about the happiness of other human beings and that it's intolerable to you that people are starving to death at this moment while you enjoy your cafe lattes or or, you know the the full abundance of your life. That you become moved from the heart to care about people and I do not think we need to believe anything on insufficient evidence. We certainly don't have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin or that a cracker literally becomes his body if we say the right Latin words over it. We don't have to believe anything we can't demonstrate in our own experience to realize that we love other people and that, that their happiness is in some basic sense integral to our own. The other side that I would dispute of what you just described is this idea that somehow our religions really are the best repository for our ethical intuitions. I mean, if you take a if you take a moral problem that now has been solved to everyone's satisfaction, like the problem of, of slavery, for instance, I mean, we all agree in the civilized world that slavery was an abomination. And then you consult the Bible on this subject and, and see just how wise a book it is. It is a terrible book on the on the question of slavery. I mean, there's no question that the abolition while they could cherry-pick part of the Gospel and, and, and try to find some rationale for abolishing slavery, they were on the wrong side of the theological argument. There's much more in the Bible that justifies slavery than there is that repudiates it. So what I'm arguing is that we should not be held hostage to these traditions where we uniquely venerate one book to the exclusion of all other books as though it has somehow emanated out of a supernatural intelligence. We should talk honestly in the 21st century about using all of our scientific insights and ethical understandings and have a 21st century conversation rather than a a 1st century conversation as it's preserved in the Bible.
1: Yet there have been many religions throughout our history that have emphasized that the rational approach. Thomas Aquinas, many of the great thinkers of the Catholic Church, for example, were rationalists who who looked for evidence of some kind of purpose through natural systems, but also acknowledged that there was a supernatural out there that held us to higher standards than our own biology. Do you think there's anything yeah. valuable or in in that approach?
2: I'm not denying that we need to be held to higher standards than our own biology. And I also think that there's no question that people have spiritual experiences that we want to, to have and explore and understand and that these these experiences are some of what is most profound and beautiful about being a human being. One problem, however, with 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 the distinction you're making between fundamentalism and religion proper really can be seen in in a character like Saint Thomas Aquinas, because yes, he was he was very rational and he was using a human reason to, in some sense, justify Christian faith, but he was also someone who thought heretics should be put to death, and it is it, no mystery as to why he thought that. Uh, it, if you believe that calling god by the right name really matters and if you believe that the souls of your children can be put in jeopardy for all time if the heretic moves in next door and tells them the wrong things about the nature of this universe then it really is rational to treat heretics rather badly i mean the heretic next door becomes more dangerous than the child molester and someone like aquinas while he was a brilliant person clearly thought that, that the heretic was a contagion in society. And while, you know, we're not burning people alive for heresy in the West, I argue in my book that we're not doing that because Christianity has has been forced to confront modernity to an extraordinary degree, And, and even fundamentalists in our culture are not as fundamental As fundamentalist as the Christians of the 14th century were. Uh, And we have, I think, a unique problem we must recognize in the Muslim world at this moment, because the Muslims have not confronted the Enlightenment to the degree that we have. And people really do get put to death for blasphemy or or heresy in in the Muslim world. And that's, that's a terrible problem.
1: Sam, will you stay with us and talk a little more after the break? Sure. It'd be a pleasure. We'll be right back with Sam Harris, author of The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason.
3: Apparently, um, conservative Christians are pissed. So, what happened? We got you elected in 2000, yeah. 2002, 2004, and you told us you were going to hate gay people. And you thought you, you said, oh, we're going to ban every gay marriage, civil union, holding hands. We see gay people, we're going to ban them, right? And, you know, you were going to uh, get tough on abortion. You were going to get tough on obscenity. And you guys haven't delivered. And all of a sudden, James Dobson of the Focus on the Family and Tony Perkins of the Family Research Council, remember everybody, family's code word for I hate gay people, Uh, and they ruined the word family. Family used to be like if you did a family group, you actually cared about the mom, the dad, the kids, and you cared about the family, and you'd take them on a picnic or something. Now it's not about the mom, the dad, and the kids. It's about not the family at all, but like Steve and Tom down the road. What's Steve and Tom doing? Ah, ban him, Right? So, but now they're pissed at the Republicans because the Republicans haven't done all the things they said they were going to do on this stuff. Now, they've done some, but not enough. And this goes to my prediction from, I don't know, maybe three years ago on the show. I said, because it's the most logical thing in the world, and this is the beginning of it. It's not nearly the end. These guys are going to destroy the Republican Party. Because why? They cannot be appeased. No matter how hateful you are, they're going to want you to be more hateful. No matter how religious, you know, fundamentalist you are, they're going to want you to be more fundamentalist. No matter how literal you are, they're going to want you to be more literal, unless it's abortion. They don't want you to be literal about that, because that's not in the Bible. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But no matter how far right you go, it's not going to be far right enough for these guys. And so, at some point, they're going to go in the, you know, in the great gesture of Antonin Scalia in church, Nah, enough with you Republicans. Okay. And that's what Dobson is now and for those of you on the radio, I went under my chin. You got it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, you could see that wonderful motion on theyoungturks.com. dot uh, com. For uh, for James Dobson, apparently used to go on diatribes against the Republicans before. Said, "Oh, they talk a big game, but they don't deliver." And then they convinced him in this you know two thousand through two thousand four period. Hey, no, get more involved in politics. If the Republicans get in charge, they're actually going to do things for you. And now apparently he's on the warpath, saying. No, what have you done for me lately? And he's threatening to pull you know, all support in 2006 elections. Now, understand, of course,
4: some of that is grandstanding. Of course it's grandstanding. They do that every election cycle. They say, you know, if they're not with us, this is trying to scare them, but it's, they're not going to stay home. Because they're not going to go out. They're not going to stay home and and allow somebody else who will completely deflate what they want, as opposed to the pre- to this president or to the Republican Party as it stands now. Uh, I, mean, I disagree. And no, t- but they, they do it what, all the time. So I and and it's worked. But mm-hmm. so I mean I you know I just don't know if it would happen. But
3: in the early 1990s and the late 1980s, uh, they would stay home. Do, and and Dr. Dobson's on the record as you know saying harsh things against the Republican Party. And saying you shouldn't, you know, there's no sense of supporting them because they're not really going to help
4: us. I just don't know that it it creates momentum. I I mean, you know, I don't think that it does. You know, Dr. Dobson stays home, and and probably a
3: lot of people that that listen to him on weekends. Big.
4: Big yeah. difference. Uh, uh, and it's he, not just our right. Dr. Dobson.
3: Uh, it's Tony Perkins. It's Richard Vigery. He He's the. Well, Vigory is sort of the, the
4: translator for them. He's the sort of the most reasonable of all the voices, and he, he lets them, you know, he channels them. So yeah, that, he's you know, not at all reasonable. No, he's not reasonable, reason. not reasonable at all. I mean, he's just, he's not as. as, as he puts as a smiley face on. That's it. exactly right.
3: And he does, but remember, he does the direct mail campaigns for the conservatives. Yeah. So this is the get out the vote stuff, okay? And listen to what he has to say on this issue. Quote. There's a growing feeling among conservatives that the only way to cure the problem is for Republicans to lose the congressional elections this fall. I love that kind of talk. He continues, there's a growing feeling among conservatives... Oh, sorry, that was the same quote. He continues, I can't tell you how much anger there is at the Republican leadership. I've never seen anything like it. Why? These people cannot be appeased. And you say, Michael, but it doesn't make sense because if they stay at home, that only helps the Democrats. You're right, but remember, fundamentally, these people
4: are irrational. Well, they are irrational, but they're also fundamentally a lot of them. People said our forefathers died for our right to vote. I mean, I have no quantitative evidence that I'm right. I'm talking about a hunch that I have, and I've always had, that that doesn't always work. And, And that a lot
3: of it, as you were starting to say, is grandstanding. And my sense of it is, look, is it a little grandstanding and a little serious? of course, there's no question that they're trying to pressure the Republicans into doing more gay bashing before the 2006 election. And they don't have to do much, that much pressure. That's Karl Rowe's plan anyway. He was going to bring that dead horse, drag that dead horse back into the town square anyway. Uh, So, yeah, they're going to do that. But there's going to be a breaking point. If it's not 2006, it doesn't matter because it's going to come. Because no Congress is going to pass... Laws that are hateful enough for these guys, that are extreme enough for these guys, that are fundamentalist enough for these guys. And when they don't, and they had a complete power, them, they controlled all branches yeah, of government, that they are gonna lose these people. And when they do, the Republican Party split And minutes. that's the fallacy, I think, but we'll talk about that, that
5: Where do we go?
2: Nobody knows.
3: I've gotta say, I'm on my way down. God, give me
6: style and give me grace.
5: God, put a smile upon my face.
1: Right now, we're back with Sam Harris, author of The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. His book won the 2005 Penn Award for nonfiction. Sam, you talk a lot in your book about about the Muslim faith and about Muslim fundamentalism, and you make the point, or at least you make the argument, that there is no such thing as a moderate Muslim. And that that itself is a kind of heresy today. Can you elaborate on that?
2: One of the taboos I break in my book, in addition to criticizing faith, is that I, I notice that there are actually differences among our religions. And this is taboo, not so much among fundamentalists in our culture, but among moderates and liberals and secularists. You know, moderates, liberals, and secularists want to say that all of our religions really are equally wise and at their core teach the same thing and they teach it equally well. They teach compassion and love of one's neighbor and and tolerance. One thing I argue in my book is that this is just an, an abject, I mean, there really is no evidence for this whatsoever. And when you consult our holy books in our various traditions, you find really uh, marked differences among our religions. They do not all teach the same thing, and they don't all all teach it equally well. And this can be very clearly seen when you compare a religion like Jainism, the religion of India that teaches nonviolence as its core dogma, to a religion like Islam, which really does not teach nonviolence, as its core dogma. I mean, really, by no stretch of the imagination can you argue that, that Islam is a religion of peace in the same way that Jainism is a religion of peace. I mean, Gandhi got his nonviolence from the Jains, and someone like Osama bin Laden is giving us a very plausible version of Islam. Now you can split hairs and and, and try to find ways he's going wrong, but there's no doubt that the doctrines of jihad and martyrdom are actually core mainstream ideas within Islam in a way that they really aren't in, in any other religion. Therefore the behavior of Muslims that were that, you know every time you open the paper these days you're seeing a kind of violence a kind of suicidal violence and a violence that targets non combatants and a a theological justification for this violence uh, and this can be very clearly seen in the biographies of the 19 hijackers you look at these guys these were not political guys they, they were not people who spent their lives agitating for regime change in the middle east they were not people who cared about the palestinians per, per se they were guys who spent an inordinate amount of time at their local mosque in Hamburg talking about the pleasures that await martyrs in paradise so what I'm arguing in my book is that we really do have to come to terms with the actual character of Islam and yes we have to find the the moderates of the Muslim world and we have to inspire them and empower them somehow
1: is that why you say that there isn't the kind of condemnation for some of these actions among the Muslim leaders that you would expect from a religion where there was a a tradition of moderation
2: yeah they if they have not had their reformation and they have not had their confrontation with modernity to the degree that we have And they think that, by and large, that the Quran is the best book ever written and that it really was dictated by the archangel Gabriel to Muhammad in his cave. And there is not a tradition within Islam of questioning the the literal truth of this idea that that this is the blueprint to the universe. So there are not moderate Muslims in the way that there are moderate Christians who challenge the the divine origin of their holy books. Uh, So most Muslims, or really all Muslims, who can stand up and, and express their creed are fundamentalists by by our standards, and this is this is a problem because when you consult the Quran, you find that it really is a blueprint for religious intolerance, and we have to come to terms with that, and we have to oblige the Muslim world to come to terms with that.
1: And how do you do that?
2: We have two choices. We have a choice between conversation and violence. I mean, at, at the level of individuals, we have this choice, and at the level of societies, we have this choice. And the problem for me with religious faith. Is that it is the conversation stopper is the only thing in my mind that guarantees that the human conversation is open-ended is a willingness to have our beliefs about the world revised and updated by new arguments and new evidence so, so I'm saying that, that really there there there's hierarchical thinking that is true in in moral terms that some cultures are less moral ultimately than other cultures that honor killing, for instance, is a totally barbaric practice that is incompatible with human happiness ultimately, and that a culture that doesn't realise that is wrong in a very deep sense in moral terms, in the same way that a culture who doesn't realize that the, the earth revolves around the sun is wrong in a in an astronomical sense. But I just think there are answers that ultimately relate to questions of happiness and suffering and, and do not have to relate in any sense to the, this idea of a personal God who is overseeing human events, because I, I just see there, there's precious little evidence for such a God, and there's, there's much evidence that there, if there were such a God, he's not a moral God, because clearly good people are suffering the most desolating evil uh, on a daily basis in this world. And if there were a God in charge of this clockwork, he should be called to account for the for the fact that old men and women in in Hurricane Katrina in New, New Orleans had to you know seek refuge in their attics and only to be slowly drowned there, and we can presume all the while praying to this God. So I, I think there that moral problems are there for anyone who's going to assume that there is a a transcendent being, all powerful and all loving, overseeing these this human drama.
1: Of course, a lot of people would blame the tragedy of Katrina on human error rather than God, but. Sam, thank you much for joining us on Ring of Fire. Sam Harris is author of The End of Faith. You can see his blogs on Huffington Post and Truthdig.com. Sam, thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Bobby. Take care.
7: When Kevin Phillips speaks of trouble ahead for the U.S., all ears along the political spectrum perk up his credentials as a traditional Republican with all scrutiny. Richard Nixon used the principles of Phillips' book, The Emerging Republican Majority, to win the White House. Over the Bush years in the White House, though, Kevin Phillips has gradually emerged himself as an independent his best-selling book, American Dynasty, An Indictment of Both President Bushes, is followed now by American Theocracy, Peril and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil, and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. Kevin Phillips, it's good to have you join
5: us. Nice to be with you.
7: Your book goes well back into history to detail exactly why the path that we're on now as a country lines us up for destruction. So let's pick an example. What echoes of history do we see with what's happening in Iraq and Iran?
5: Well, first of all, you shouldn't say destruction. I would say turmoil, trouble, trauma. Destruction is, is an overstatement. Countries survive one of these wringing out processes. They, they just have some very difficult decades.
7: That's kind of reassuring, I guess, as opposed to destruction. So we, we always hear, we've heard from day one, you know, as soon as we become cognizant adults, that those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. So, so what are we repeating here that we've seen in previous empires as you set them up in the book?
5: Well, just to try to do this one quickly, I think that the, the patterns that I've seen that are relevant again for the United States are the following. You, you tend to have in these leading world economic powers, by which I, I throw out Russia and Germany in the 20th century, for example, because they didn't have the global dominion economically. But if you go back and look at them, uh, what you see in the last years from Rome down to Britain is a, a sense of... Decay of things not going all that well, of the moral fiber of the country weakening, of luxury gaining ground. And this has been a, a common phenomenon, and the, the liberals the left tend to see it from the standpoint more of economics, the rich getting richer, the ordinary person uh, being hit by unfair policies, losing some of what they used to have. Where the uh, conservatives see it differently, they see the morality coming unraveled, the national fabric in in shreds, the uh, decadence coming in, in in art, and homosexuality is often an issue. So while I think there's a general sense that you can spot in these empires late in the ballgame that there's trouble, the left and right interpret it differently. Both of their perspectives have some validity, but they they put a much different emphasis. Religion also tends to be a a very important ingredient in these late years. Generally, it manifests itself by getting a little too evangelical, too extreme, too proselytizing. I think it's because people are sort of, find their lives disrupted by the psychologies of a late-stage empire. They get a sense of enemy. And what you see from Rome, where Christianity became the state religion and made a lot of enemies because of its uh, harshness of insisting on conformity, all the way down through the Spain of the Inquisition and the uh, militant Catholicism in Europe, down to the Evangelical Britain that basically made its religion into a kind of moral imperialism around the world, there's an attempt to, to do too much in this direction. And we follow suit. And while that's a very simplistic statement of where religion is in the United States. One of the things that it does that causes problems for us, beyond the domestic impact, where it's, say, at odds with science, is that you, uh, you have this overreaching foreign policy, which does have some religious input, because for a lot of the Republican coalition, What's important right now is the unfolding of the biblical story of the end times, and the Bush policies in the Middle East have to pay some attention to that, if not in formulation so much as in explanation.
7: Well, that's, I, I do want to go further with global overreaching. I want to go back, though, to what you're talking about with fundamentalism, because it, it, when you bring this into the present tense, you paint the fundamentalists as something of a patsy for the money interest in the way they're juxtaposed right now, that the, the fundamentalists aren't all that clever about economics, and that the lower classes are pretty much clueless as to what's happening in terms of oil and industry money exchange over their heads.
5: Well, I think they're, they're not clueless about oil Elements of them are, however, sort of anesthetized and withdrawn from economic discussions by their sense of the end times, by the idea that Armageddon, uh, the second coming, are just around the bend, so who needs to worry about the the deficit? Uh, Questions about peak oil may not matter all that much either.
7: And you and, cite the the uh, popularity of the Left Behind series.
5: Well, that's a frightening one, because approximately 60 million of these books were sold in book or tape or videotape form. And uh, my assumption is that most of the, the Bush religious constituency, which is about half, almost half of his total constituency, probably read at least one of these books, and they put this in a very... Armageddon-esque, uh, almost near-the-end-of-the-world type of pattern. And it's ironic that one thing they, they don't talk about very much is oil, because only the Antichrist deals in oil, not the good guys. So it's one of the things that strains the American dialogue, is not being able to talk about oil. And I wouldn't want to say that's simply because they, uh, they have this fundamentalist and evangelical constituency, but that does have to be part of the influence there.
7: Kevin Phillips' book is American Theocracy. It's his third book on America's alarming path. The others are American Dynasty and Wealth and Democracy. So let's go a little further into global overreaching. What's an historical parallel for what we're seeing right now in the U.S. overreaching militarily?
5: Well, you can take very vividly Spain's decision, even when it was beginning to come unraveled economically, to commit its forces on behalf of the, the catholic power in europe in the seventeenth century in the thirty years war they couldn't afford it Their military was very good but it had to fight too many enemies in too many places in the country basically went bankrupt in the process the, the british got overextended in the early twentieth century at the height of empire when the war came they had to fight the germans from africa to asia to europe and then obviously in the waters of the atlantic with submarines uh, they really couldn't afford this. The Germans lost, but the British lost their preeminence before the war as the leading economic power and they had to start borrowing and by the end of World War Two they were basically in hock, and they'd lost their previous standing. They couldn't afford the burdens, the military burdens of empire. And the United States at this point is, in my opinion, very much the same posture we can't afford the burdens of middle eastern involvement in iraq we can't afford what might happen in iran we can't afford the huge cost of having the military serving as a kind of oil protection service although that's the last thing the pentagon will admit
7: With regard to Iran, because, you know, America obviously is considering its options over there, I just watched the fog of war, and Robert McNamara described in just a terrifying way how close we came, how much closer we came than Americans realized to mutual destruction uh, between Cuba and the U.S. Could we face this same kind of brush with insanity in the Iran situation?
5: Well, I think it's possible with Iran simply because we have a messianic president at this point. And it's one of the generally unperceived aspects of the religification of American politics that we have a a president who served as his father's liaison with a religious right in 1988 in the presidential election that year. He told the Republicans and preachers in 1999 when he was running for president that he thought God wanted him to be there. He bathed in the spotlight after 9-11 when the religious right, claim that for the first time in history the President of the United States was also the leader of the religious right, replacing Pat Robertson. He's made a lot of statements about uh, uh, the White House says they never made the one about how God told him to strike Afghanistan and God told him to strike Iraq, but he's never denied the report by Bob Woodward that he sees the, the whole evolution of everything as God's plan. He said in 2004 that uh, when he was talking to a bunch of Amish in Pennsylvania, that he trusted that God spoke through him. Without that, he couldn't do his job. So we're looking at an absolutely unique pattern in an era when the Middle East is at the vortex of oil policy, at the unfolding of uh, so supposed biblical end times of having a president who just has this odd view of himself as some kind of spokesman and uh, uh, thunderbolt thrower for God.
7: Kevin Phillips, thank you so much. Thank you. Kevin Phillips' book is American Theocracy The Perils and Politics of Radical Religion, Oil and Borrowed Money in the 21st Century. You can find that out now from Viking.
8: Uh, Christina Page, she is vice president of the Institute for Reproductive Health, uh, Health at uh, NARAL, New York.
9: Yes, thank you.
8: And author of "How the Pro-Choice Movement Saved America." Are we? I'm going to start off with. Like, we, now I'm not even going to welcome you here. <laughs> I don't know why I did do that, <laughs> but welcome. Are, are are we entering an era where the um, where a large uh, the part of the uh, of our society is just arguing that any sex that has, that it, whose goal is not procreation is just dirty.
9: And wrong, yes. I think this is,
8: uh. But wrong because it's dirty.
9: Yeah, I, I think that this is an anti-sex movement. It's. It's dirty.
8: It's, sex is dirty, <laughs> it's, isn't it? It's dirty sex. <laughs> I
9: mean, there's not one form of sex that, uh, even those, the, the forms that can't uh, lead to procreation like masturbation that, uh, the pro-life movement approves of, um, you know, they, they,
8: that's dirty.
9: That's very dirty. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, this helps
8: our ratings. I say dirty.
9: <laughs> well, if you want to help your ratings, we can talk about the effects of virginity pledge programs because those folks are having porn star sex, uh, these virginity pledgers.
8: Okay. Let's do that. Uh, <laughs> Because I, I actually we we, we have talked uh, on the show before about the uh, there's it, abstinence only sex ed uh, doesn't work.
9: It definitely doesn't work. In fact, you know these kids have the same rate of STDs um, as kids who aren't pledging. Um, and you know I don't know what the censors will do, but but we might as well talk about the real. Uh, if, if
8: you're clinical, it's fine. You okay. can say. Anal.
9: Okay. So they're five times, mal- males are five times more likely to be having anal sex. And,
8: uh. No, with, with, with their girlfriends or? It,
9: it, they didn't specify. Well, uh, I think the, I, mean, I would assume that's true. Um, and, uh, the only difference is, is that, uh, you know, they're having, they are having porn star sex with the exception that porn stars seem more likely to use condoms. Uh, right,
8: so I, they're having more oral sex, and because yeah. they don 't think that's intercourse, so they, they when they say abstinence only
9: exactly
8: they 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 think they're saying if I, as long as we don't have vaginal
9: that's intercourse right. and, and and as long as long as it's fraught and unplanned, um so any premeditation, so the use of any contraception or or or, or a condom would be wrong
8: okay, now there is a movement, an anti contraception movement the contra contraception movement uh, a foot
9: yes I mean here here what we have right now is a movement that it wants to ban safe uh, abortion in our country and it is opposed to every single proven method that prevents pregnancy there is not one pro-life organization <laughs> okay. in the United States that supports the use of contraception even though we know it's eighty five percent effective it reducing abortion. Instead, every time the pro-choice movement, the only contraceptive movement in this country, um, has come up with new technologies, new efforts to furnish Americans with contraception, every single time we are met with a deep, well-financed, and increasingly successful opposition in the pro-life movement.
8: So in other words, the one proven way of reducing abortion is opposed by the pro-life movement.
9: Exactly. Abortion is a fig leaf in this debate. Okay, let's repeat not, that.
8: Can we repeat <laughs>
9: that? There is not one pro-life organization in this country that supports the use of contraception to prevent abortion.
8: That's not what I wanted to repeat. This is what I wanted to repeat. <laughs> was me what I said, <laughs> which is the the, the yeah. uh, corollary to what you said.
9: The only proven.
8: The only proven method of reducing abortion is opposed. By every pro-life movement, there, yes. That's okay. I got and and let's talk about the countries like uh, European countries mm-hmm. where they have, uh, you know, they have uh, legalized abortion, they have uh, a healthy use of uh, contraceptives. Uh, that's that's a. Um, yeah. uh, I put a value judgment on that, but they have low, low. Much lower rates yeah. of abortion than we do,
9: right? Yeah. The countries that have the lowest rates of abortion in the world are those that have adopted the strongest pro-choice policies. Uh, you know, we're talking about Italy, the Netherlands, Sweden, where contraception is free, and often abortion is free. Uh, but they, they have lower the lowest, the, the lowest. lowest abortion rates in the world. And you know what? You're not going to find the Right to Life movement sending staffers over with pad and paper. Because the... The things that lead to the lowest abortion rates in the world are the things that are most offensive to the pro-life movement, furnishing people with the tools to leave healthy, active sex lives. You know why? Why?
8: Sex is dirty. (laughs) Okay, now let's go to South America.
9: South America. You know, in South America, the pro-life policy is in effect. It's the exact uh, platform of the U.S. pro-life group banning uh, abortion, it's illegal. it's illegal, and contraception is hard to come by. Those countries have the highest abortion rates in the world, in many cases two times the rate of the U.S. average. Um, so, you know, when, for, for people, for in particular pro-life people...
8: Do people know this? Do no. Do people know, you know this?
9: Somebody said to me the other day, the American public has a lot of information about abortion, most of it wrong. Uh, the, if the pro-life public is deeply concerned with the... The high rates of abortion in our country, what they should really recognize is that it's the policies of the organizations, the very organizations that they're sending money off to, that are leading to these outcomes. This is a perfect example. You know, we've heard a lot over the last decade about late-term abortion uh, how uh, from the from the Right to Life movement. Well, you know. The, when we look at the pro-life policies that have been enacted in the, in the states, what we find is that they don't lead to a reduction in the abortion rate. Instead, what they do lead to is an increase in late-term abortions.
8: Now, why is that? Because, tell me the because link.
9: The, the link is is that you place hurdle and after hurdle in the way of women who are trying to seek services early in pregnancy. And what it, the outcome is is that women leave the state um, To get care, they have to take two days off of work, get child care. I mean, most of the women in this country are having abortions.
8: So, so, so because of those hurdles, they wait till later yeah, in they, the pregnancy. It gets pushed
9: further. In Mississippi, after the state enacted its mandatory delay law, the next year, second, ter- second trimester abortions increased by 53 percent. So, you know, the, this is this is what we're talking about. The pro-choice movement has done more to prevent abortion. We, we've you know, our first pro-choice president, Bill Clinton. It was his policies that resulted in the most dramatic decline in abortion rates in the recorded history of our country. Um,
8: it went went down every year. He inherited a, a pretty high the, abortion rate. The,
9: the, one of the highest abortion rates we've ever known after uh, George H. Uh, w. Yeah, H. W.
8: Okay, so and and it went down, and par- and the reason for that is that he was a proponent. Of uh, family planning, of uh, uh, readily available contraception.
9: That's right, and and comprehensive sex ed, and which we know works. Ed.
8: And comprehensive sex ed is basically, let me see if I got this right. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want, uh, Christina, I want to know if I got it right. Comprehensive sex ed said, uh, kids uh, delay having sex, uh, you know, but you know and 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 abstinence is 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 a guaranteed yeah. way i mean total abstinence is a guaranteed way not to get any stds not to get an exactly. unwanted pregnancy but if you're going to have sex right protect yourself
9: right the, that's that abstinence was emphasized abstinence is always em- emphasized these programs are often called abstinence plus now listen in sweden which has the lowest teen pregnancy rates and abortion rates in the world they 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 away with abstinence only in the 70s. Um, what they experienced was a 70% decline in teen pregnancy rates. In Sweden. Sweden, okay. In, 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 in teen pregnancy rates over the ne- next 30 years. Um, and teens in Sweden with comprehensive sex ed are much more likely to delay having sex than American teens. In fact, the teen pregnancy rate in the United States is squarely in the middle of the third world block. We are the only rich country. We're between Rwanda and Thailand in the number of, of teen mothers um this is so we we know we have available to us all all the uh proven um uh methods and techniques that work and what we see is this movement in our country that is opposed to every single proven effort to reduce the unintended pregnancy rate in our country and so while we what we really have to understand in the context of us rapidly moving towards outlawing abortion is that we will not be furnished um with the the pregnancy prevention in the aftermath of abortion they want to
8: control
9: people's sex lives and they see the family and the um the architecture of the family as to who's in control of it as paramount to their goals um so this is in my book how you know how the pro choice movement saved america it talks about uh, the, that the family structure um that most Americans have today in which there's uh two two-income family both parents were working is deeply offensive um to the christian right Mm -hmm. um
8: as is sex
9: as is sex
8: because it's dirty Dirty. thank you you finally
9: i've caught on Mm -hmm.
10: The second story on the front page today uh, is about science of a different sort. It's science Bush style. This story, actually, I feel like would be hilarious if it wasn't real. When I initially pitched this this morning at the Rachel Maddow Show staff news meeting, uh, I think it was received as if it were a joke. And everybody thought it was very funny. And then it dawned on us all that it was true. Um, You remember Plan B? right? We've talked about it a few times on the show. Plan B is emergency contraception, keeps you from getting pregnant. If you have sex and the condom breaks, or God forbid you get raped and you don't want to become pregnant, you take Plan B. Within 72 hours of intercourse, it's basically a strong dose of the birth control pill, and it prevents you from becoming pregnant. Emergency contraception. You can get Plan B by prescription, but since it's time sensitive, since it needs to be taken within 72 hours, and since the right-wing theocracy types are telling pharmacists to not let women fill contraception prescriptions unless the pharmacist can visually verify that the intercourse in question is taking place within the lawful and monogamous bounds of marriage, and maybe not even then, for a million stupid reasons. It makes sense that this should be over-the-counter. In other countries, it is, and there's no problem. There have been millions of these pills prescribed in the U.S. with no problem. Uh, Since they were approved, they should be made available over the counter. The FDA advisory panel that looks into the safety of these things, that looked into whether or not it's safe to let Plan B be sold over the counter, that advisory panel said unanimously that it is safe. Go ahead. And the Bush administration said no. Actually, technically, what the Bush administration said was, Teenage sex cult. What? You heard me. Sex cult. Specifically, actually, they did have that age restriction. Teenage sex cult. Yes, teenage sex cult. That was their rejoinder to the panel of expert safety advisors who told them it was scientifically okay. The Center for Reproductive Right. Re- I'm not kidding. The Center for Reproductive Rights has sued the FDA to try to make them approve the over-the-counter sales of Plan B, since this is supposedly a scientific agency, and all the science says they should go ahead with the decision. Uh, in this lawsuit, a memo was released during Discovery, the Discovery portion of the lawsuit. It was an internal FDA staff memo in which the deputy commissioner in Bush's FDA is quoted as saying that adolescents might form, quote, sex-based cults centered around the use of plan b and therefore it shouldn't be approved the fda is not commenting on the matter but they are also not contesting the authenticity of the deputy commissioner's statements in this memo women adolescents and grown women cannot be allowed access to emergency contraception in this country because the availability of contraception will lead to an epidemic of the dreaded teenage sex cult teenage sex cults that's what's going to happen Do you remember science? Remember when we believed in science in the United States? What did you do in the war on science, mommy? Before you had all those kids that you didn't want and you couldn't afford. Unbelievable.
11: All right, so Jill, this weekend you met a Scientologist. Oh, so
12: uh, what I found when I was talking to the few Scientologists that I talked to last week to get Bob Adams on the show last week. We
11: had the chief spokesperson for a Scientologist. Oh, is that right? Bob Adams, former NFL tight end on the program. Bob Adams played for the... How do you know that? Well... I mean, I, first of all, I don't think Michael does, because I didn't know. I don't know. I'm saying he played... <laughs> oh, with- I thought you were going to take a shot at no, it. Oh, Steelers, Patriots. Steelers, Patriots. Yeah,
4: Patriots. Bob Adams, the Patriots. <laughs> played with Julius
11: Adams, also a Patriot. I don't think he played with Julius Adams. <laughs> I'm sure he did. <laughs> uh, all right. So, Joe, you met a Scientologist.
12: Yeah. And like all... Um- like all cult members, the Scientologists are very warm and inviting, and no matter what you throw at them, they try and be very calm in their response back to you because they want to bring you in. They want to make you feel mm-hmm. welcome and comfortable in their crazy environment. I ran into a newbie, though. Oh, uh, where was this? On, on, on Hollywood. They were doing the Dianetics testing mm-hmm. with the e-meter machine. The machine did did yeah. you take one? No, because we were walking. We I'm couldn't stop. I'm telling
11: you, if you, got it, you should stop what you're doing to take an e-meter ring.
12: We couldn't stop. We, we, had a, we had a goal, and we she had to be done by 7 to go hang out with the Schurz and the jerk that thinks 39 miles is not a long walk. <laughs> but anyways, so as we're passing by, the one woman was like, Hello, would you like to take an e-meter test with us today?
11: The answer should always be yes.
12: Um, and I walked by, and uh, I don't know why. Maybe it was the adrenaline Maybe it was because I was sweating a lot. But I said, ew, no way. Mm -hmm.
11: (laughs) You said ew? I did. I actually ewed. And then
12: the pro didn't respond to me. But the newbie uh, said something like, why wouldn't you want to? Do, why? And I said, because you're crazy. <laughs> and he looks at me and like I yelled it loud enough to where it obviously offended him enough. As we just passed by, he yelled at the top of his lungs, well, I'm not as crazy as you are. No, that's it's a good, f-
4: it's a it's good, good retort. Comeback, yeah. yeah,
12: But that is not the Scientologist's comeback. Because that scared me away and didn't make me feel warm and invited and comfortable. Oh, you mean, they should say,
11: "Hey, we understand. You have a great walk.
12: Right. The more you never change your mind, we'll right. be here." Exactly. Exactly. I bet he got reprimanded. But then Contessa wouldn't let me walk back the other way. Yeah, they're took not going
11: to let him. Wait. They're going to force him to wait three or four years before he gets to find out who Xenu is.
12: But I'm. I've decided I'm going to do this every weekend. I'm going to walk. Very, up low a,
11: he's I mean, totally
4: he's very low level. He's totally low level. First, First of all, know, if he, he were if he were high level, he would have been at Mission Impossible three. But all the people that were not were had to be standing on the streets
12: exactly but I've decided I'm going to do this now um, every weekend I'm going to walk up and down the streets of Hollywood and tell the Scientologists how crazy they are and harass them I just
4: always say to those people get well soon
11: Uh, by the way uh, in in the what is Scientology under the effectiveness of Scientology I just opened the open the book here to page 263 I was wearing glasses when I went for my first Dianetics session I'd been wearing them for six years my vision was steadily deteriorating it was getting worse right right during the session, I discovered uh, why I had started wearing glasses, which they're not going to tell us. All of a sudden, I, let me tell you why you're wearing glasses. Because you had bad vision. Yeah, you were near sight. Right. Yeah. All of a sudden, I felt a tremendous surge of inner strength and certainty. I took my glasses off, and I felt terrific. Things looked really clear. That was over 20 years ago, and I haven't worn glasses since. Today, my vision is almost perfect. Dianetics really works. That's from RB. Wow. Yeah, that's great. RB,
4: also. It's never, you know, Robert... You know Bickerstaff. It's always the initials. They're not going to tell you who they are because they don't exist. They're the same no. people that write forum letters to Penthouse.
11: Right. Rb right also wrote. Right. I was a twenty year old sophomore at a small southwestern university. I never thought this would happen to me, but I swear this is true. Right. There's a hole in between the boys' bathroom at the girls' bathroom in my dorm. Of course. Right. <laughs> one day I was looking through, and then the woman on the other side said, "I see you. Do you want to come over and take a shower with me?" Well, one thing led to another. And my eyesight's been perfect. <laughs> exactly.
12: This is Jill Pike from The Young Turks on the Best of the Left podcast. For more information on The Young Turks, please go to our website at theyoungturks.com.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, Go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com to find out all about the show. Uh, Contact me directly with any of your questions, comments, concerns, um, complaints, um, criticisms, did I say that? Uh, any of that at hippysympathizer at gmail.com. I love hearing from all of you. And go to newmediarevolution.org to find all of the other members of the Progressive Podcast Network. Uh, not everyone on there has a promo listed, but a lot of them do. So that's, it's, a, it's a good way to, to, to do it. Um, it's not just a list of podcasts, but you can also click uh, the little links and, and just hear you know, all the promos all at once and and see what sounds good to you. So go and check that out. And um, it's a long show, so I'm cutting it short, so to speak. Have a good one, everybody.